a portion of our service here. Last week I began a study on Romans, kind of a big book and kind of different um, style of uh, preaching, just going verse by verse through it. There's a lot of deep stuff and a lot of good um, theology in Romans. Uh, next, next Sunday, I do encourage you to uh, be here and participate, bring uh, some good food to uh, share after service. I'm going to try to tie the service and just flow into the um, business meeting side of it. Uh, when churches, I've been in Assemblies of God Church for my whole life, so annual business meetings, um, I've been in once a year for 43 years, so uh, I've been in a lot, and I'm, my goal, now that I get to have the privilege of organizing it, is, you know, to make it uh, something that's a, an exciting thing to enjoy, and not just, you know, sit and vote on a, a person to be on the board, and look at some money numbers for a few minutes, and then walk out, but, um, I'd like to share throughout the day from the morning service and into the devotional at the business meeting just uh, my heart for the church and what the, what the mission of uh, church is. Why do we have um, church? <laughs> Why do we come together in a building like this and we have our, um, we talk about Jesus, but we also have some, you know, legal formation of a of a group, a membership, I guess. And so, uh, like I referred to in Kids Church uh, today and, and the past couple weeks, they're learning about church as well. And so, uh, next time we take communion, my goal is to do it before or during worship so the kids can have an opportunity to, to take part in that. And part of your responsibility as parents is to help them to know uh, if they're ready for it, it's, you know, not just a snack time in big church, um, but it has, you know, meaning, and so they've learned about it, and you can help them to uh, know if they're ready for that, and as well as water baptism today is what they're talking about, and, and if you've thought about being baptized in water, that's a main ordinance of, of the church, and so as they uh, learn about that. We want to provide the opportunity, and a lot of times kids see that as just, oh, it's like a swimming pool in church. I get to go underwater. Um, so help them to discern when they're ready uh, for that. Uh, to our church, uh, water baptism is a big deal, and um, it doesn't uh, save you, but it shows the world what's God, what God is doing on the inside, that when you go under, your old self is is going away and you're a new creation and you're making that covenant with the Lord and that's kind of what we're talking about in Romans chapter 2 this morning is the way they showed their covenant with the Lord. So uh, we love to have life in our church and those ordinances, baptism and communion are really important uh, and just a great way for us to grow in our relationship with Jesus. And so I uh, just encourage you to be thinking about those things. And if you have questions on any of that, please don't be afraid to, to talk to me and we can talk about it. So if you would, please turn to Romans chapter 2. 
And there's obviously a lot of different translations of um, Bibles. When you look back to uh, the New Testament is written in Greek. So when you look back at the Greek language and try to translate it to, to what it means for us in our world today, different people have different uh, ways and reasons they translate it in different ways. There's a Bible. If you don't have one, there's, there should be a Bible under your chair in front of you. And I think that's the English standard version. I typically uh, preach with the New International Version or the New Living Translation just because uh, it's easier for a large group of people uh, to understand um, the, way that, the way that's worded. But um, when I study, and what I've taken last week and, and this week is from the New American Standard Bible, and it's not the most easy to read because it's more literal to the Greek and, and, um, and the Old Testament was written in uh, Hebrew. And so it kind of puts it out there as more uh, close, closer to the Greek language of what Paul was trying to write, basically. And it doesn't uh, make it necessarily, it's not that it's not readable, it's just not as easily readable uh, as maybe the New International or New Living Translation. And obviously the King James Version's been around uh, forever and uh, there's other translations uh, like that. But it's important to go back to um, what, the, what the author's original intent and what's the closest. Some words in Greek, don't. there's not a word for it in the English language. And so sometimes... Uh, when you find uh, difficulties like that, it's it's you you got to just look back at what their uh, intent was and kind of go from there. A little bit of more background information on Romans. It was written around uh, 57 A.D. when Paul was in Corinth um, on a missionary journey. You might remember. Uh, you would know Corinth is he wrote letters to them, the church in. Uh, we get it as Corinthians. He wrote letters to them as well. But uh, Rome uh, is, was a very large city. And no doubt there was Christians of many different backgrounds there as it was kind of this main hub that uh, people would go to. Just kind of like in North Dakota, you go to Bismarck and you have people from all over the state and the region that... Um, that maybe moved to the bigger cities for different reasons. So it's kind of like that in Rome. There's Jews and Greeks. Uh, there's Gentiles. Uh, there's slaves. There's free. Uh, and obviously there's male and female there. A little deeper look would show us that during the forming of the early church after Christ's death and resurrection, that the Gentiles were coming to the faith. And Gentiles were um, open to the gospel, and since it was connected to the Jewish faith, uh, the physical churches uh, there in Rome were full of uh, these Christians with a lot of different backgrounds, okay? In 49 AD, uh, about five to eight years before Rome, uh, Romans is written, the letter to Romans is written, uh, Emperor Claudius had uh, decreed that the Jews uh, would be expelled from Rome 
on account of some disturbance in the Jewish quarter. Uh, historians believe the disturbance uh, is probably had something to do with the opposition among certain Jews to the gospel message. They didn't, if you recall, when Jesus rose from the dead, uh, they didn't believe him uh, to be the Messiah, and they were spreading the wrong uh, message and that it was false. And so this is still, uh, you know, 20 years later, uh, so it's fresh, and they're still kind of causing this disturbance. And so Claudius just kicks them all out, (laughs) okay? Just go. Get out of Rome. Uh, just a little side note, one commentary said in Acts chapter 18, you, you may remember the names Priscilla and Aquila, and they were part of these uh, who were expelled at this time in, in history. The decree was for about five years, uh, and it would have lapsed when Claudius died, if not sooner, around AD 54. And so, Those Jews that uh, had been exiled, they come back and they would have uh, begun to return. And upon their return to the churches, if you could imagine, um, five years goes by, kind of a long time. And in in the meantime, the Gentiles, the Greeks who had been in those churches, they don't carry on the Jewish traditions. And so when the Jews return... Uh, they're finding their churches a little bit different from when they leave. And so they're, uh, some of the challenges that Paul is addressing uh, in, Ro- in this letter to the Romans uh, is the problems that these Christian Jews uh, were bringing uh, to the Gentiles, to the Greeks that had been in these churches um, during this issue, during this uh, exile from Rome. So, Romans chapter 2, Paul uh, changes his writing style a little bit from chapter 1. One commentary said that Paul has described the deception. In chapter 1, Paul described the deception that was prevalent among the Gentiles about the nature of God and the sinful behavior that resulted. If you remember when we talked Uh, last week was kind of the chain of if you don't believe and you're, you know, you're not trying to live right, you're going to fall into the sin and the line of sin that that occurs from that. In chapter 2, he turns to address the deception prevalent among the Jews that their status as the elect of God granted them a more lenient standard of judgment. While knowing the righteous decrees of God and the grave consequences of disobedience, the Jews not only continue to disobey, but they actually excuse themselves in the process. Let's start with verse 1. Paul tells them, Therefore you have no excuse. O man, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that matter in which you judge someone else, You condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Just a little little warning uh, this morning. Uh, Paul doesn't hold back, so you might need to, you know, just relax and just know you're going to get attacked today. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Um, The word, 
he uses there passes judgment. It means to uh, to try, like in the in the court system, to condemn or punish, to avenge, to conclude or to sue, to sentence to. So when they were passing judgment, they were doing those things to the other people. And Paul says, you condemn yourself, you judge against yourself. Something I thought going in, and this kind of reflects the rest of the chapter as well, I don't have the power or authority to judge. If I judge someone, it doesn't condemn them, right? Because I don't know the truth. I don't know uh, what the truth is. Only God does, and only God has the power to judge them, right? And so um, when I judge another person, I'm condemning myself as guilty to God's judgment. When we judge someone else, we are already guilty ourselves. Does that make sense? I know it hurts a little bit, but I hope it makes sense. Verse 2, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Literally, uh, this means that we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Uh, remember chapter 1, the word truth was used. There, here it is again, and it's, it's meaning that God is the righteous judge. He's the only one that knows the truth of a person. He doesn't make up false accusations. We do as humans and in a, in a sinful flesh. The devil uh, falsely accuses us and falsely accuses others. God won't falsely accuse you. He knows the truth. He knows your heart. He knows what you've done, okay? Verse three, but do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? To shorten this verse a little bit, I, I wrote, do you who do these things, do you think you will escape the judgment of God? What's the judgment of God? It's a, it's a decision. It's the function or the effect for or against, like in the word crime, the condemnation or damnation. God has the judgment, makes the judgment. He makes the decision. We don't have the authority to make those decisions over a person's life. Only God does. In verse 4, he continues, Do you think, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that uh, the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You see, the Jews were making a fatal error of misinterpreting the fact that they had been spared from the wrath of God as proof of their righteousness. They felt like, well, God hasn't, you know, we're spared from it because we're righteous. God isn't judging us. No, in, in God's kindness, his mercy, his love, he spared them 
to, the, to point them to repentance. And instead, they took his kindness to mean, well, I'm righteous already. Look at me. I'm, I'm the man, and I can judge the others who are unrighteous. The phrase, the riches of his kindness, is uh, the fullness or abundance of God's moral excellence, his character, his demeanor, his tolerance, and his patience. For that is what leads us to repentance, not the judgment of God. God doesn't want to scare you and put, the, put fear in you that you would turn from your wicked ways because maybe he's going to like squelch me and squish me and shock me with lightning, Okay. It's his kindness when we see his uh, kindness in our life, when we see his grace in our life, his mercy in our life, that should drive us towards being repentant, turning away from our sin. His, his kindness is meant to give opportunity for repentance, not a license for sin. He's gonna go into that. Paul is about to reiterate the consequences of a heart that is unrepentant. We read at the end of chapter one, the road that sin leads us down and the depravity of of our mind or our heart that does not turn back to God. But the difference in chapter two is that he's addressing their condemnation of others. And while they do the same thing, Verse five says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Storing up. (laughs) You're gathering, you're accumulating wrath, anger, indignation. When you read this this verse, who's... Heart is stubborn and unrepentant, ours, right? And who's the one storing up the wrath against ourselves? Us. The evil, uh, the evil that we do, the unrighteousness that we do is, is being stored up against us. Verse se- 6 and 7 says, Who will render, uh, this is not a question, this is uh, finishing the statement, Um, the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life you'll get eternal life but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness wrath and indignation is what you'll get This is a picture of what will take place once we enter eternity. We will all be judged and no one will be spared from it. Verse 9 says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. The word tribulation is a, a pressing, a pressure it's gonna, uh, we're going to be pressed. And distress is a dire calamity, extreme affliction. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Verse 10, but glory and honor and peace 
to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. God is no respecter of persons. He's a respecter of the heart, right? He looks at the heart. We're all going to be judged. And on, on the one hand, the Jew is first in line for eternal life. But on the other hand, they are first in line for judgment. There's no partiality with God. We will all uh, stand before him. And if we've done evil, there will be distress. If we've done good, there will be peace. We talked over Christmas about the peace of God. Having peace with God is through, found in, in repentance and uh, forgiveness and a, and a freedom in our life. That's what brings glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. This is the first time of many more times in the book of Romans that uh, Paul brings up the law. And it's a capital L uh, because it's, uh, he's referring to the law of Moses uh, that was given, God's law that was given to Moses and their way of uh, worshiping God and, and living for him. But now as Jesus has come, and died and, and resurrected and he sent the Holy Spirit we're, we're 20 years, uh, 30 years past that moment. Now, uh, these churches and, and the early church and whatever you would call these Christians, these believers, um, they're not living under the law. God, Jesus uh, has fulfilled that law and, and God has made a new covenant uh, through him. And we'll learn all about that in the coming weeks of, of Romans. But here, he, Paul is saying that all who have sinned without knowledge of the Mosaic law will die without that knowledge of Moses' law. And all who have sinned under the Mosaic law will be judged according to that law that they claimed or they strive to follow. Verse 13 continues the thought, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. We're going into a section here. Uh, he's saying it doesn't matter uh, if you call yourself a Jew or if you uh, just say that. Um, maybe you are saying, uh, well, I do this and I do that. It's... Uh, God is looking at the heart uh, to see what uh, they're actually doing, that what they believe should be reflected in their actions. And this reminds me of uh, a verse in James uh, one twenty-two through 25. It says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, freedom, 
and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. This section, uh, Paul is going to, uh, I don't want to just keep saying the same thing over, but Paul is, is going to start referring to them in what areas that they've been teaching others. You should be doing this, you should be doing that, but they're not doing it. And they're not, so uh, he's saying that you can't only be uh, just hearers of the word, of, of the law, but you need to be doing what it says to do. Verses, going back to Romans 2, verses 14 through 16. He writes, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these people not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. The Gentiles that he's talking about here were all of those who were not Jews, not Israelites, not under Moses' law. They hadn't made uh, a covenant to follow Moses' law. Uh, they were uh, new Christians uh, through the ministry of Jesus and the disciples, the early church. Gentiles, um, going back to our introduction uh, to what we learned that the Jews had been exiled for about five years, the Gentiles had kept going in their faith. They were living for God and they were doing what they have learned or possibly observed. So when they, like the verse says, by nature or out of instinct, do the things in the law, they show that the law is written on their hearts. It's not just a book that they carry around and say, you need to be doing this and you need to be doing this, all the while they're doing something else. They're doing the things that uh, God has spoke to them and talked to them and written in their hearts. They're, uh, the phrase, they're conscious Conscience bearing witness, it means their, their conscience, their mind and their heart uh, testifies jointly with their deeds, what they were doing. Their thoughts alternately accusing, meaning uh, charge with some offense or they're defending their defense of their deeds. This section points out that all of us have sinned, whether it's those under the law of Moses or those under the law that's written in their hearts. The next section of scripture, Paul directs towards a representative Jew. Most Bibles kind of have a, a, a paragraph break um, at verse 17 there. And his, his, he words it in a way that um, when he's addressing this letter to the Christian church in Rome... Uh, now he's, uh, if you can picture in your mind, he's sitting before uh, one person. It's not um, Bob or Jim, okay? It's just a, a representative Jew. And so if you can picture the way he's writing his letter, he's directing it now towards one person, um, 
but referencing all of the Jews that would be uh, reading this letter. It sounds similar to to verses 1 through 4 of the chapter as to kind of single out an individual, but he's not uh, singling out one person, but all of those that act this way. In the verses 17 through 20, he lists various attitudes that the Jews held as the people of the law, saying, if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, and and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. Then Paul contrasts those attitudes uh, with their actual performance in the next few verses. He says in 21, You therefore who teach another... Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And the meaning of that I had to look up a little deeper. Uh, Meaning you who turn from idols in disgust, like they would not worship uh, a golden image or idol, but yet they would not hesitate to plunder uh, their shrines. You who boast in the law, verse 23, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Oh man, that would hurt. They probably thought they were really good <laughs> Jews, really good Christians, and, and Paul is calling them out that their actions, their actions are actually turning the Gentiles away from God instead of pointing him uh, to God. Possibly the, the, the main point of the entire chapter is from this section, that God is dishonored when the law is taught, but it's not followed. And we can easily relate to this today. Christianity is known uh, in the world, literally, uh, all across the globe, uh, to have high moral standards. And, and those standards, which are awfully, often directly in opposition to society's norms, they draw both praise from some groups in society and criticism from others. We Christians and and the church are often criticized that uh, it's full of hypocrites and we need to practice what we preach. And this is certainly true and this is what Paul is getting at uh, 2,000 years ago almost. And, and And it's true for us today. Society is not going to agree with a lot of what we uh, say should be happening. The way we, uh, the way we vote or the way we uh, lead, whatever it would be. Um, but we have to uh, follow 
God's word. We have to follow um, what he has uh, instructed us to do. And it may go against uh, what other people would believe, but we need to be uh, doing better than what the Jew was doing in this day so that we're not blaspheming God's name among the Gentiles in our community around our nation. We need to live out what we are preaching and what we are teaching. And a hush fell over the crowd. I'm talking to myself here too, guys. Okay. <laughs> the final section here, Paul raises the topic of circumcision. If you don't know uh, what circumcision is, um, don't ask me. Ask your mommy or daddy. <laughs> okay. Um, we're going to move on. Circumcision was the other great symbol of the covenant that the Lord made with the Jews. It was first instituted to Abraham in Genesis 17 that every male uh, Jew made a covenant with God by being circumcised. And it became more and more important uh, to the Jews as time went on. And so Paul here addresses the role that circumcision plays in the judgment. He says in verse 25, for indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Basically, circumcision doesn't save you. And they could go around and they could boast that uh, they were circumcised and, and they were following God's covenant. But if they weren't doing, again, if they weren't doing the things that they were saying to do or obeying God's law, uh, fulfilling his law, uh, their circumcision is worthless, is done. Verse 26, so if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? He turns the statement around saying, again, if anyone keeps the requirements of the law, he will gain the honor or reward of it. It would be just like he was circumcised. He's telling them, it does not matter whether you're circumcised or not now, the gospel is for everyone. Verse 27, and he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? What's Paul challenging here? One theologian said the background to this statement needs to be appreciated before its force may be heard. It was a common belief in Jewish literature that the unrighteous would stand condemned and that the righteous Jew would be vindicated in the presence of his enemies. And it was a common assumption during Paul's day that the righteous were the observant Jews who had resisted compromise with the Hellenistic world, that's the, the Greeks' um, religion, and that the sinners were the Gentiles and those Jews who had become like them. 
Paul is saying that the righteous are those who do the law, not the ones who call themselves uh, the, the righteous or call themselves Jew or only because they are circumcised. I'm going to wrap up with verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Ask the worship team to come up and we'll uh, prepare to close. The, the takeaway from this whole chapter is kind of summed up in this last verse, last couple verses. Uh, some of you may be Jewish in, in heritage and ethnicity, but we could change this to uh, our Christianity Instead of the word uh, Jew, we could substitute it for the word Christian. And instead of uh, circumcision, we, we do that now more in, in a health way than a religious way. But it's a, there's, there's a symbol in our heart, uh, a covenant with God. Uh, circumcision of the heart is, is symbolic. We don't physically cut anything off our heart. But it's... Uh, symbolically, the, the cutting away of our sinful flesh. Uh, another chapter in uh, Romans will discuss that, what our sinful nature is that doesn't want us to be uh, a Christian. Our sinful nature doesn't want us to live right. So we have to cut that away. We have to humble ourselves, and we have to turn towards God and allow him uh, to work in our heart. So if we wrap up if we reread verses 28 and 29 substituting us for the jew christians for the jew it would say for he is not a christian who is just one outwardly nor is uh the circumcision the the new covenant with the lord that which is outward in the flesh but he is a christian who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, not by the letter of, of the, the word of God that we follow. We can't just say, well, I'm a Christian because I come to church. I'm a Christian because I read my Bible. We're not Christians because of, of those things. We're Christians because Jesus has changed us and we've made covenant with him that we're going to live for him. We've turned away from our old ways, kind of like what, uh, definitely what uh, water baptism is symbolizing. When we go under, we're, uh, we're dying to ourselves, and we're coming up a brand new creation. We can't just say that we're Christians and we can't just tell people uh, we go to church and so we're going to be good with the Lord. It has to be on, our, on the inside. It's written on our heart. And when it's written on our heart, and when circumcision has been uh, done on our heart, man, then it's going to flow out. And we're going to be able to live by the Holy Spirit, 
The word spirit there is capitalized not by the letter, not by just saying like the Jews were back in this, this day. And our praise for doing these things, our praise will not come from men, but from God. Would you stand uh, with me today? I hope you uh, are encouraged uh, by this word. I know sometimes it could be hard. Pastor Kevin's saying, I'm judging everybody. I'm judgy, I'm judgy. Okay, what I'm saying is uh, our relationship and our Christianity, our walk with the Lord is, should be in our hearts and we make that covenant with the Lord. And when we uh, talk, talk to others and we share Jesus with them, we're living it out more than just our words telling them, uh, but they can see Jesus through our actions. There's a fine line. Uh, when you look at this, there's a fine line between um, our works and our faith. And James kind of talks about that later in his book too. But our faith, having faith in the Lord, should bring the good deeds. We don't do the good deeds um, just to kind of earn our way into heaven. What Paul is saying here is our change in our heart brings those uh, good deeds. That's God's judging us through that, through our heart. He would see what's really going on in our heart. So I want to encourage us this morning, if you've never had a relationship with Jesus and this has spoke to you, man, today is your day and you can turn to him and uh, make that covenant with him. We want to pray for you in that, or maybe uh, you're realizing today that uh, some of the things that Paul was speaking to the Christians in Rome is speaking to your heart today. Man, make, your, make yourself right with the Lord in these closing moments of the service today as we sing. Um, don't focus too much on singing the lyrics if you uh, need to pray use this time uh, to get right with the Lord and if you would like prayer uh, with me just come to the front and we'd love to uh, pray over you so Heavenly Father God we we take this challenge to heart God that we want to live for you we don't want to be like the Jews who say one thing but they don't act that way God, we want to reflect what you've done in our heart and the covenant that we've made in our heart to serve you, God. We want to serve you well and we want to honor your name that people would see you uh, through our life, not just through the words that we tell them uh, who we are, but our actions would show who we are, that we love you so much, God. And we want to change this world. We want this community to know you, God. There's so many people uh, in this uh, region that don't know you yet, God. And we pray for their soul that you would, that they would see you through us. God, help us to uh, share your love with them, that they would see that in our hearts, God. And if there's people here um, that just need a change, maybe they're uh, hearing this word, um, they need to make it right with you, Lord. Uh, we do that in these moments, God. We need a relationship with you. We, we start that today. We need a covenant with you, God. We start that today. Lord, I pray that you would forgive those who need forgiving and bring freedom 
uh, to their hearts and to their minds today, God, that you would show us ways we've gone wrong that we need to confess of, that we would um, find that freedom and that forgiveness in you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Would you spend time in, in prayer as we... Uh, as the worship team leads us in a song, and if you'd like me to pray with you, please come forward here. I encourage you, church, to be continually in, in the Word. Some of this is really heavy uh, theology and stuff. Read it again. Pray the Holy Spirit to speak through it to help you to understand and grow in your relationship with the Lord. We pray a blessing over the people today, God. Would you go with us as we go from this place? Help us not to leave you here. God, that you would just be uh, with us at work and at school throughout this week. Bless your people as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.